Well, good morning. Well, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 8. And first six verses, it's pages 297 uh, in, your, in your Bibles here. If the term God's providence is new or new-ish to you, let me try to define it by its opposite. The opposite of God's providence would be that things are random. You can either believe that things just happen randomly or that God has planned, orchestrated, determined all the details of your life that matter. Let's think about what matters to God when he plans our life. Romans 8.28 that uh, Nate read earlier. Let me just, if I, we'll play and get this turned on. There we go. Romans 8.28 is one of the best verses to describe this. And we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things. So everything in our life is to accomplish something good because God is good. Now, does that mean that it's what we think is good or what God thinks is good? Obviously, it's what God thinks because he has a good purpose. And as we sometimes use or even misuse this verse, we sometimes forget the context. It's in Romans 8, which is about God being at work in us to sanctify, which means to spiritually grow us. So his good purpose is always to craft events around us that will accomplish our spiritual growth. The very next verse says about how he wants us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So God's at work in doing that providentially. God is controlling things for that purpose. That'll make a lot of sense, I think, as we read our passage today. Um, this is our 10th study, actually, in the life of Elisha in 2 Kings, the prophet of God, about 800 B.C. And in this uh, little passage, God gives Elisha a message of something that is about to happen. A famine is about to happen. We're going to read the whole passage here, the first six verses. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, we'll go back to that story, he said, go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can, because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said, she and her family, or household you may have, went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to the king to beg for her house and land. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and had said, tell me about all the great things that Elisha has done. And just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to beg the king for her house and land. Gehazi said, This is the woman, my lord, the king, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. The king asked the woman about it, and she told him, retold the story. Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, 
give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land from the day she left the country until now. Is that the providence of God or what? The exact timing of this conversation and the arrival of this woman. So let's think through this. Verse 1, first of all, God tells Elisha that he has decreed or declared or called a famine on the land. And the land here refers to the land of Israel, specifically the northern kingdom of Israel. And the fact is that God had warned in the law that if they persisted in disobedience, he would discipline the nation of Israel, particularly if it's wicked leaders were wicked he would discipline them with things like famine so back in deuteronomy we find this however moses wrote if you do not obey the lord your god and do not carefully follow all of his commands and decrees i'm giving you today all these curses will come on you and overtake you your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flock The sky over your head will be bronze, the grounds beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. No rain, no crops means no food, means famine. So again, like our study last week about the siege of the enemy of Aram, uh, it came as a discipline from God. God decreed it, but sin caused it. And sometimes we need to keep that straight because we see things that are going on in, in the world and, and innocent people will have suffered in, in Israel because of this famine. We, we see these things happening and, and uh, we have to realize it's because of sin that we live in a sinful world and, and all kinds of hardships come about. And so Israel's about to suffer for the sins of its leaders in particular and yet God is about to protect this one particular woman of Shunem, who we got to know in our study back in chapter 4. She's the one who had been so generous initially to Elisha. So let's just read a little bit of what she had done that started her story in 2 Kings. One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. In other words, come and eat with me. So, she, so whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. And so they begin to show him hospitality. Eventually, they put an addition on the house, and her and her husband do that for them. What a gift it was for Elisha. Elisha had an itinerant kind of a ministry as a prophet. He would go around northern Israel, and he'd be teaching the law and encouraging people, I'm sure confronting people about sin that, he, uh, that God was directing him to, 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 to confront. And, and so at least when he came to Shunem, he had a very nice place to stay and some good friends who would be uh, with him. After she had done this for him, he said to her, what can be done for you? And she replied, I have a home among my people. And it probably meant, I really don't need anything. I mean, I've got a nice home here. I'm with the people I love. I, I, really, Elisha, I just did this for you, and, and I don't need anything. Well, that great story continues because this servant of Elisha named Gehazi says to Elisha, you know, 
they don't have any children. They've always wanted children. And, and Elisha, uh, inspired by God, says, you're going to have a son. And that was probably somewhat remarkable because it notes in that story that her husband was already old, and yet God gave her a son. Well, then that boy grows up, and I'm guessing he's maybe this tall when it says that one day he went out with his father to, to watch the reapers, and he gets sunstroke or something, and he goes home and he dies that day. This woman has remarkable faith, and she runs off to go find Elisha in another city, and Elisha comes back and prays and lays himself on this boy, and he is raised to life. It's a phenomenal story of the miraculous power of God. That's the backstory to verse 1. This was that woman. And so here she is. It's years later. She's living a, a good life with, with her son, uh, a farm among her people. Um, we don't know how many years have passed. But um, it's interesting to think that um, Elisha uh, prophesied his ministry spanned some 55 to 60 years when you take into account the four kings that he served, including really a fifth one, Ahab, who when he was being mentored by Elijah, he, so it's, a, it's like five, six decades. So this famine fits somewhere maybe in the middle of all of that. And when God decrees this famine, Elisha thinks right away about this woman in Shunem, close friends, I would imagine, by now. And he goes to her and says, go away with your household or family and stay wherever you can because of this famine. So it's obviously great for this woman to hear about the famine so she can go someplace where there is food. But how hard was it for her to leave everything familiar. Uh, her family, we assume at this point that she was a widow because no mention is made in this story of her husband. And before it was her and her husband building this addition to the house for Elisha. So we assume that uh, since he was already old, he's probably off the scene by now. Um, so she's a single mom with a son. And the son, we don't know, could be single. Uh, could be that he's married with children because the term household means really essentially your, 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 your immediate family. But as the famine hits, she's at that stage of life where she's thinking, you know, finally everything is settled down. Everything is looking pretty good. I have my son. Maybe there's grandchildren. Uh, the future looks okay for being old because, I mean, they're going to continue my legacy and, and they're going to farm the land and they've got the cousins and the uncles and the aunts. We're just where we want to be. And then God speaks to her through Elisha and says, go, leave the country, the farm, the cousins. Basically, she became a refugee, like so many in our world right now. In fact, Elisha says, go wherever you can. He doesn't instruct her where to go, but she chooses Philistia, land of the Philistines, just a little uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, there's Shunem, and so she had to go somewhere down in the area of Philistia, probably a 70, 80, 90 mile journey, depending on where she found to, to stay. And she's supposed to be there now for seven years. It's a long time to be away for the hometown girl to now be a, a refugee in a strange culture. If you're familiar with the Philistines, you may know that they have been historic enemies of Israel, but Actually, this is during about a three or four century season of peace between the Philistines and the Israelites, uh, 200 or so years before David and, 
and uh, Saul and David had pretty much taken care of the Philistine uh, threat. So at least she's safe, but it's a foreign culture, if we can imagine having to go live someplace where you don't know the language uh, for seven years. Will she ever, will she live long enough, she has to wonder, to see her dream fulfilled of watching her son, grandsons farm the land that had been her and her husband's. Of course she was grateful, but as she went, she realized nothing is really guaranteed. First lesson maybe we learn here about God's providence, his control and determining of events, is that God providentially allows certain trials in order to spare us other trials. This woman happened to know she was being spared the famine, but she would face the hardship of being displaced for those years. Many times we don't know. We don't know what God has spared us and what difficulties it required to be spared those things. Uh, Have we embraced that? That some trials are God's plan to help us avoid other things or accomplish his purposes. Because, of course, God doesn't remove all trials. It's a sinful world. We anticipate heaven when those things will be perfected. But do we remember the goal of Romans 8.28, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him? If we're called according to his purpose, he's accomplishing these purposes. That in no way minimizes the hurt of the things that anyone goes through. But it gives us a perspective that when we suffer, even if it's innocently, God can be sparing us from something that would have hindered our spiritual progress when in fact this very series of events is actually helping our spiritual progress. Some of you may come from, we'll say, difficult homes. And uh, I know some of you who are determined to leave behind some of the patterns of sinful behaviors and and attitudes. You've chosen uh, purity. You've chosen respect. uh, You've you've chosen joy and, and kindness. Because you are being used by God for something greater, which is to halt some cycle, end some pattern. And it starts with you. And you maybe are beginning to see what God might be accomplishing according to his good purpose. Or it could be so many other things. It could be certain illnesses that we uh, have had, do have, or will have that uh, are afflicting us or a job loss or or griefs. A woman named Laura Story a worship leader and recording artist wrote a, a really good book I read a handful of years ago called When God Doesn't Fix It, Lessons You Never Wanted to Learn, if you can relate to that title. Laura's husband uh, suffered a serious brain tumor early in their marriage and uh, has permanent brain damage as a result. And she, in this book, tells the journey of that as well as lessons that she didn't want to learn. She's the artist that wrote the song Blessings that uh, some of you may be familiar with. What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? 
What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? Can you relate to mercies in disguise? I, I don't know how the Shunammite woman uh, viewed those years as she's making that journey away from everything that was felt so important to her and her security and comfort. Did she begin to realize that some of the... If she had kept all those comforts, that maybe her faith would have stagnated. Did she embrace God's kindness and goodness by pushing her out of her hometown? If we assume rightly that her husband has died by now, is, is somehow this complete recalibrating of her life for seven years part of God helping her process her grief and loss? Did she grow in gratitude? We don't, we don't know, but we can imagine, based on maybe our own lives or other passages of Scripture, the kinds of things that God could do. I'm guessing she began to really appreciate that God had placed Elisha in her life providentially, right? The guy who just happened to be coming through town and, and she stretched, reached out in, in hospitality and they start this relationship and they have this friendship and, and he's the one that had, had, had prophet, uh, prophetically announced that she would have a boy when she thought she'd never going to have children and then the boy died and then she got him back and now the famine and, and yet God had placed her, him in her life. Do you have an Elisha in your life that you appreciate? Someone that warns you to leave uh, something or to do something hard. God providentially puts people in our life to advise, warn, steer, direct, encourage us. Teens, your parents might be good for something, right? They are placed there providentially, exactly the parents you, you need to have. Did the, woman, did the woman embrace those things, or did she just resent the inconveniences of being pushed away, displaced? I'm guessing she embraced it. Her character suggests she embraced it. Elisha said it would be seven years. And you can bet she was counting, seeing every passing season uh, recording in some way the annual trip of the earth around the sun until it was five and six and then seven years. We'll assume she fared okay. We're told she was a wealthy woman. Hopefully she could bring along enough resources to survive those years fine. And then, but on, the, on her mind all the time has to be, what am I going to find when I get home? Anticipating the trip. But we find in verse 3, that at the end of seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to the king to beg for her house and land. Did she know she'd lose her house and land? We don't know, but she knew. But we can kind of visualize emotionally, the, as well as visually, the, 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 the moment she's arriving and begins to see the house and land. It's where she and her husband had lived their years together. It's where they had hosted Elisha. That's where they had built that extra room. That's where the boy was born. That's where he died. That's where he was raised. And as she approaches the house, others are farming her land. 
and someone is living in her house. It's kind of the Goldilocks moment, but not in a good way. How disturbing was that? You could say that's a kind of the worst case scenario to come back and find that her land and her house are gone. Who confiscated her house and land? I think the most obvious answer is the king did. Go back in Israel's history, suppose it could actually be his father, Ahab. Remember Ahab wanted uh, the vineyard next to the palace and Naboth owned it and he wouldn't sell it. And he begins to pout and then what happens is wicked wife Jezebel says, I'll get the house for you. And she hires some false witnesses who testify against Naboth. They stone him, they kill him, they take the land. That's, that's what you can do when you're the king. And so if a landowner left the country, there wouldn't be that much standing in the way for the king on the throne to confiscate it. So she and her son have to go and beg, appeal for it. This term is the inferior appealing to the superior, which, of course, she was and he was. You couldn't claim, claim it. You couldn't file for it. You couldn't demand it. You couldn't sue for it. She, he was the king. All you could do is beg. And so we can imagine uh, something more than just a little intimidating, trembling maybe, this woman and her son approaching the king, traveling to Samaria, what, knocking on the door, talking to the guard, I need to see the king. If this were a movie, the cameras would then shift to inside the room where the king is at that moment, having a conversation with Gehazi. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and had said, tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to beg the king for her house and land. Gehazi is as shocked as anybody. This is the woman, my lord the king. This is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And the king asked the woman about it, and she tells the story again. It's all verified. This exact moment that's not coincidence, is it? It's providence. If you've been following in our studies, you may recognize and have a question about Gehazi, because back in chapter 5, we would have assumed Gehazi was done, gone in history, because Elisha, Elisha's servant Gehazi uh, got greedy when uh, God used Elisha to heal the foreign commander, Naaman, of his leprosy. Naaman had offered a gift, and Elisha said no, but Gehazi runs after him and says, <clears throat> he makes this story up about how he needs some silver and some robes for some guests that are coming, and he goes home with these bags of silver and, and these two fancy robes, but God tells Elisha what he did, and, and uh, God gave Gehazi the leprosy that he had healed uh, of, of, uh, of Naaman. So what's Gehazi doing here now? Well, it's possible, I guess, first of all, that he repented and was healed and restored. I like stories of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. But I don't see that that happened here. No mention is made of that. 
So the most likely explanation is that the book of 2 Kings doesn't record everything in chronological order. So we would have to place this before, after chapter 4 and before chapter 5, a little like this. So Gehazi was present, of course, when the Shunammite woman's son was resurrected. He's telling that story, right? And now we see him uh, telling the king about that in chapter 8, however. And then at a later time, chapter 5, Gehazi was present when Naaman was healed of his leprosy. In fact, that wouldn't even be a very strange thing because, again, if you picture that Elisha's ministry was 50, 60 years long, the writer of 2 Kings is giving us a selection of things that happened. And uh, Bible scholars have noted that it's more related to themes and progression of stories than exactly trying to give us the history uh, in order in this section. And in fact, as you think about it, what a, what a fitting conclusion, kind of that final uh, uh, end to the miracle story is kind of closing the loop of, 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 of what we've learned about the power of God working through Elisha and he had so many miracles that he did through him uh, to now bring back the characters of, of Elisha uh, telling about the, the, the Shunammite woman and Gehazi of course is a part of that story God providentially timed this so back to our story so Gehazi just happened to be visiting with the king. So I think it's probably normal for them to be talking. If you go back to and remember a little something from 2 Kings 4 when this Shunammite woman had, had done this nice thing of building on this addition for Elisha. Elisha said, what can I do for you? Like, could I talk to the king for you? There was some kind of rapport and relationship, so it's not altogether odd that someone like Gehazi I was talking to the king, but he's asking uh, Elisha, maybe he's a subsequent king. We don't know which of, these, which of the kings of Israel he was. He's not named here. Tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. Thinking of when this took place, it's at the end of the famine, right? So the famine is over. Uh, we don't know that the king was disciplined and repented. There's no mention of that. And none of the kings of northern Israel were ever called anything but evil. So he probably didn't learn anything, but he was certainly by this time glad for normalcy. We're always glad for normalcy, even after the past two years, whether we learned anything or not. The king is thinking, we're getting back to normal, and I think he's just listening to Gehazi as entertainment. That's a fascinating story. It's not that he is acknowledging and worshiping the God who did these miracles, but he loves great stories. Um, People in Jesus' day, they, they all flocked around because they'd never seen anybody do miracles, and it was fascinating, it was entertaining, and they didn't have any streaming, so what were they supposed to do? Gehazi's telling about the bears that had come and eaten, killed the, the, the teen boys who were uh, mocking Elisha when he started. That's quite a story. And there was that time when the, when, the, when the stew was poisonous, when they're going to feed the prophets, and, and, and Elisha miraculously cures the stew so they can eat it. It's edible now. And there's the time when uh, the prophets were given a few loaves, and, and there wasn't nearly enough to feed a hundred of them, but Elisha breaks it, and it miraculously feeds a hundred people. And then there's a time when the, the axe head fell into the water in the Jordan River and it defied gravity and, 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 and God miraculously brought it up out of the water and, and it floated, an ac iron axe head. And 
This is, this is great stuff when you're wanting to be entertained. I mean, I would think that an atheist reading this section of Scripture could enjoy reading it. Not because they believe in the God who did this, or, but, but we all like stories, TV shows, movies. We, we know they didn't happen, but the plot lines and the characters are fascinating to us, so we, we stay engaged. So we don't know what the king believed, but the story to top all stories would have been this one. That this man supposedly brought a dead boy to life, and, and the king is listening. And who else better to tell it than Gehazi? He had, been, he had been part of the story. Gehazi was with Elijah, Elisha, when the woman came and said, the son that God gave me died, and, and God had, uh, Elisha had sent uh, Gehazi ahead and said, lay my staff on his face, and Gehazi did it, and then that didn't work, and then Elisha came and laid on the boy and prayed, and, and the, it says the boy sneezed seven times and got up. I mean, who better to tell the story than Gehazi? He was right there. He knew all the details. And the king is enthralled, trying to take in whether, you know, this is a true story, did this really happen? But he couldn't escape the dynamics of God's providence. That while he is hearing that story, knock, 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 this woman is at the door. And Gehazi is as surprised as anybody under verse 5. This is the woman, my lord, the king, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And the king has her retell the story, and then the end of verse 6. Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, Give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land from the day she left the country until now. What a coincidence. No, what a providence. Do you suppose that the woman would have gotten her land and uh, house back, except for this timing? Nah. Kings in Ahab's family line, for sure, weren't especially known for their compassion, but there was no escaping. Gehazi's there, the woman's there, and, and the king, what you going to do? He assigned an official, he turns to his aide and says, return everything. Find the titles, change the names. In fact, figure out the income that she lost and pay it. So this woman and her son come from being totally fearful, intimidated, and stressed to being amazed at the goodness and the blessing of God. God's ability to, God's ability to surprise us with blessings goes way beyond anything we could ask or think. In fact, sometimes, and I'm sure there would be a lot of stories in this room, when God's at work, it is like unbelievable, except that we believe, when you see certain details that fall into place like too easily because God has put it together. Why does he do that? He's still doing the same thing that, that trials do. From Romans 8, 28, he's working all things together for the good and his good purpose. His good purpose in blessing is to develop a very, very essential spiritual trait. Humble gratitude. Humble gratitude. Because the reason he would bless us would certainly not be to uh, feed our greed, fan our pride, make us all 
big-headed, but to give us humble gratitude would be his goal. And so the woman got more than she asked. It wasn't just even getting the, the land and the house, but he, he writes out a check, probably silver and gold. Uh, in, in a time of famine, you might think, well, how much income could there have been? But, you know, that first year was probably still a crop. And the last year when the famine was over and maybe there was some moderate income in between. But somebody kept track of this and it was all given to her. And so she got the cash as well. Pay her. And so yet one more time, this woman, kind, generous, hospitable, God-honoring, is blessed very specifically. I suppose someday, wouldn't it be great to meet her in heaven? And swap stories of the providence of God in your life and her life. What stories could you tell about the timing of God? Because here's the principle. God providentially times events to bless us. The job that's providing for you and your family it had to be certain people, certain opportunities, maybe the ability to go to school, or the mind he gave you for sure, right? But the skills, the personality, but events and timing, and that's how you heard about the job. Or your spouse. How did you meet her, him, when, and how you did? My parents decided to send us kids to a Christian school in a different county. Guess who I saw? God puts it together. If, if you have children, when you have children, how many children, who they are, God puts it all together. This conversation between the king and Gehazi is just one of billions of conversations that are almighty, infinite, omni, omniscient God has pieced together according to his good plan. His good purpose. The question is whether we're aware of it, whether we're grateful for it, whether we're trusting what God is doing. So the next time there is something that tests us, we acknowledge his providence. Next time something blesses us, we acknowledge his providence. Do, do you expect that God is at work in the events of today, March 27? Or is it just the big stuff like, you know, jobs and spouses and big decisions? Or is he, is he, is he providentially guiding the conversations you'll have maybe after the service today? Is, is he at work in the, in the detail, the thoughts you're having right now? Some choices you will make? People who will give you advice, advice you might need to give somebody else. Since God is good, we know that he can use all these things, even, even mistakes and bad choices to together create the person who would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ that he wants you to be. Ultimate good. Well, one of the great accounts of God's providential timing is the story of uh, Joseph uh, in, in Genesis 37 to 50. Amazing 
series of events. Joseph is about to be killed by his jealous brothers, but one of them spares his life because there's an opportunity to sell him to the Ishmaelites who just happened to be going by. Many siblings have wanted to sell their siblings, but it worked out for them. Ishmaelites happened to be going by. They happened to sell Joseph to the Egyptians, to a certain guy who he works for, and then he gets up in power, and then he's falsely accused, and he's in prison, and he gets out. Eventually, all these things work together so that he becomes the second in power, the prime minister of Egypt, at exactly the time when his dad and those brothers who are back in Israel are suffering from famine, and he can have them come, and he can provide for them. And then the brothers who did this all to him are are thinking he's going to be certainly bitter towards them, and so they're afraid of what he might do to them. But Joseph acknowledges the providence of God. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So the fact that you, my brothers, hated me, sold me, I was enslaved, I was falsely accused, all these things worked together so that I could have this opportunity to save my family. That's acknowledging the providence of God. Another one is Esther. Read the book of Esther. You'll never see the name of God in all the book of Esther. And yet the theme of Esther is the providence of God. King Artaxerxes of Persia, it's during the the captivity years of of, uh, the, the nation of Israel, Artaxerxes deposes his king, his queen Vashti, and just happens to select a Jewish girl, Esther. Out of all the beautiful women of the country, he chooses Esther to be his next queen. Esther's uncle, Mordecai, just happened to overhear a plot to kill the king. And he reports it, and the king's life is saved, and that's duly noted somewhere in the history books, but is forgotten until the night before a terrible edict was to be fulfilled which would allow the people to kill the Jews. That night, the king can't sleep, and he asks for someone to come and read the history books. And in there, in that reading, they suddenly come across this account of Mordecai. And the king realized he's indebted to Mordecai for his very life. And he says, has anything been done for this guy? And they said, no, not really. And so he calls Haman, wicked Haman, the guy who was going to kill Mordecai and all the Jews. Mordecai, Haman is tasked with honoring Mordecai. And the Jews are spared and Haman is hanged. And you just see the fingerprint of God in all of this. But there was a key moment where Mordecai tells his niece, Esther, sends a message and says, you've got to tell the king about this. A moment of courage, kind of like this Shunammite woman going before the king. And Mordecai tells her this message. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So you have to recognize the providence of God, but then sometimes you have to act on it and do something courageous. We we can fill screens with stories from the Old Testament in which God was controlling 
events. <clears throat> you hopefully can fill the pages of your memory that you know <clears throat> what God has done for you. What will you do with the assurance of God's providence? The next test, the next blessing. Is there something that, that, that God will speak to you about his providence that causes you to do something that God has in mind for you that would accomplish his good purpose in your life. The fact that you're here this morning, you came to church, this service, this time, right here. Maybe other times you've chosen not to. You could have gone to a different church. But you're here today. Do you see God's providence in the immediate? If this is where God has you for a church family, then what's his plan for you to grow, to learn, to serve? What are, what are his good purposes? Is there conversations you need to have, opportunities you need to take? Will there be someone you meet you know, at Walmart after church that's going to have a conversation that gives you an opportunity with a neighbor, with a friend? You see, we're, we're, we're supposed to be called above the immediate, begin to think like God thinks and go, he is putting all these things together because he has a good thing in mind. He has a good purpose in my life and it's that I would be conformed to be more like Christ. Will there be a next trial that will give you eventually a, a, a ministry like Joseph had to, spare, to save his brothers? Will there be a temptation that comes up in your life that actually is going to be a defining point and you're going to choose to do the right thing and it's going to turn the tide of something in you or your family? Is there going to be a blessing that you're going to just find a way to, to bless others? Do you expect to be guided by the providence of God in something difficult or in a great blessing because we either believe that God controls nothing or that ultimately he controls everything that matters and what matters is that we become more like him let's pray together <clears throat> thank you heavenly father that we are not caught in some kind of random set of events we live in a whole world and culture that is desperate and desperately trying to seize control of things because they don't know you, they don't know your providence, they don't believe your word, they don't believe your plan, they don't believe your goodness. And so, Lord, we can imagine those who have, have no anchor in your providence are desperate for the ills that they perceive, whatever they are. But instead, Lord, you have given us your word so that we can know you. We know your, your standards. We know right and wrong. We know your, your, your purposes in our life. You know our, we know your plan for eternity. We know that you sent your son, Jesus, to, to be our savior. And we can be spared the judgment we deserve and be given the eternal life that we don't deserve. If we put our faith in you, Lord, there are so many wonderful providential things you've done in our life. Help us to be those who recognize and act in obedience, understanding your good purpose in us. In Jesus' name, amen.